Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. This is Diana Spaulding, the host of Motherly's Becoming Mama podcast. And I am thrilled to be bringing you a brand new episode of our podcast sponsored by our friends at Stanford Children's Health. Stanford Children's Health with the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Stanford is the San Francisco Bay Area's largest healthcare system exclusively dedicated to children and expectant mothers. With over 65 locations, including 25 primary care locations across the Bay Area, chances are you can visit a Stanford Children's Health pediatrician or specialist for everything from sniffles to sleep training right in your neighborhood. And I am so excited to have our guest, Dr. Jennifer Kaufman, with us today. She is going to answer tons of questions that we have about taking care of a newborn during that fourth trimester. A little bit about our guest. She graduated with honors from NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York and completed her residency at Mount Sinai Medical Center. While she enjoys the entire range of pediatrics, she takes particular interest in newborns and the issues that new parents face. As a mother of two children, she loves providing practical mom-tested advice to her patients and has written several articles on parenting skills for parents. Dr. Kaufman, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, this is awesome because the fourth trimester is, it's, you know, it's an exciting time. And there's also a lot of new, primarily as it relates to the new human <laughs> that you are taking care of. And there's tons of questions that come along with that. So we're really grateful to be able to grab some of your time and answer what are probably some of the most frequently asked questions of this newborn period. Absolutely. You know, when I see new families come in, they come in with usually lists and lists of questions. I think there are so many books written about pregnancy and how to do pregnancy best way for you. But the books that are written about taking care of newborns are usually very almost alarmist. They almost are sort of like what to worry about. And so I feel like it's sort of my job to do the opposite, really, and help families to get through this in kind of a really peaceful, calm way. I love that so much. And I think that ultimately, certainly it's about taking care of the baby, but it also is so comforting for the parent, right? Because if the parent feels calm and empowered and confident, they're going to enjoy this new experience that much more. Absolutely. That is honestly one of the most important things about being a new parent is recognizing that you can do this 
and that the best thing for you to do really is to remain calm. It's it's just so important and calm and happy and empowered parents are make the best parents. Yeah. Yeah, well, I love that. So I'm going to dive right in. The first question that I'd love for you to answer for us is, how do I know what to do when my baby is crying? So this is such an important question. And and honestly, the answer changes a little bit as you go through those first few weeks or those first few months. And I think that that's a, a really, really important thing to talk about because it definitely confuses parents. We sort of tell them one thing in the beginning, and then as your baby gets even just a little bit older, just a few weeks older, the answer kind of changes. So I would say in the first few weeks, uh, and I'm sure that new parents are going to hear this all the time, in the first few weeks, sort of almost everything is about feeding your baby particularly if you're trying to breastfeed. Mm. And so the first few days in the hospital, the first few weeks when you're home, most pediatricians and lactation consultants who are helping you to try and breastfeed your baby are going to kind of give you the message that we want to try to avoid crying. That in the beginning, you really want to try to sort of preempt crying by trying to nurse your baby very, very often. And these are things that you can talk about with your pediatrician or your lactation consultant after your baby arrives. And that's a great message. Babies who are really crying sometimes will have a little bit more difficulty latching on and breastfeeding or honestly even taking a bottle. By the time they're really, really uh, hysterical, it can be a little bit difficult to get a brand new baby to settle down and feed. So the first few weeks, uh, we try try to uh, preempt that. But that's a very confusing message because going forward after the first two or three weeks, it's it's actually not always possible to preempt the crying. And every single family, every single parent is going to end up with a crying baby at some point. And so given that original message that we give them, I think a lot of parents feel very almost despondent when their babies start really, really crying at three weeks or four weeks. They feel a little bit like a failure, like, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, all along people have been telling me not to let my baby cry. And now here's my baby crying and I have no idea what to do and I must be doing something wrong. So I think it is an incredibly important message to recognize that babies do cry. They all cry. You're not always going to be able to keep them from crying. And in fact, sometimes they're going to cry and you're not really going to be able to tell why. But it is a good idea to have a little list in your head of sort of what can I do? What are the things that I can do? And it'll change as your baby gets older. But the basic list is the same for every baby, right? So of course, as I just said, it always starts with feeding. So if your baby is crying, the first thing that runs through pretty much every parent's head is, is my baby hungry? Do I need to feed my baby? And so that's usually the first thing people are going to try. They're going to try to either breastfeed They're going to try to give a bottle, whatever is working for them. And hopefully that's going to work. But as I said, many times as your baby gets older, it may turn out that that's really not what's making them cry. So the next thing on everybody's list usually is to check the baby's diaper. And that's a great idea, although there is a little secret that most babies actually don't care (laughs) if their diapers are dirty. They actually will just not really care at all, but that's okay. You should still check. Then it gets a little confusing. It's like, okay, they're not hungry. They're not dirty. So gosh, what could it be? You know, certainly I think it's really great to think about, is my baby hot or is my baby cold? And, you know, here in the Bay Area, our weather is absolutely crazy. It can be really, really freezing first thing in the morning and then crazy hot in the middle of the day. And then four or five o'clock, all of a sudden, it's really, really cold again. And so, you know, I think this happens everywhere that people live, but particularly in the Bay Area, you want to think, is my baby dressed appropriately for whatever our current temperature is? A good benchmark for that 
is to try to put one extra layer on the baby than what you have on yourself. It's not perfect, but it's a good kind of framework to start with as far as sort of how many layers to put on your baby. So that would be the next thing. Okay. And then after that, I would start to think about kind of other little weird things. So for instance, is there a tag on the baby's clothing that might be pinching them? Mm. Or, you know, some one really common thing that we can see is, I, I, I hate to say it, but new, new moms tend to lose a lot of hair. You actually get a lot of extra hair during your pregnancy, but after you deliver, the hair does start to just a little bit fall out. Right. And so it's actually, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's a little surprising. Yeah. Right? You're like a little disappointed. <laughs> I know. No, I know. I know it's a little disappointing, but it, it happens, you know. So so one thing that we actually see not uncommonly is we can see babies who come into the office just crying and crying and crying. And uh, when we look, we actually see that there's like a little hair wrapped around a finger or a toe. Mm. Uh, we call that a hair tourniquet. And that's extremely painful. So, you know, check out your baby's whole body. Make sure there's nothing, no hair wrapped around a finger or a toe or nothing that's pinching them. Get them maybe undressed, look at the whole body and then dress them again swaddle them because most babies do like to be swaddled. And then if nothing else works, everybody is going to get to this at some point. Everybody has this experience and it's it's very, very stressful for some moms. If you get to this point where you have really tried your entire list and you just cannot figure out why your baby's crying, I think it's really, really important to go ahead and put your baby down someplace safe, bassinet, crib, stroller, and and take a break for just just a minute or two. Yeah, I love um, that so much. Yeah, I think it's really important to regroup. We are programmed to be upset and anxious and kind of our heart is racing when our baby is crying. And babies are so perceptive. Mm-hmm. They absolutely can pick up on our moods, even newborns. They will pick up on your stress level, your mood. And if you are stressed out, if you are feeling anxious, that is actually going to make your baby cry more. So once you have run through this list, and you're, you're starting to feel that anxiety, go ahead and put your baby down, grab a glass of water or take deep breaths, you know, go in another room quickly as long as your baby's someplace safe and just really try to calm yourself down. And once you're feeling a little bit more collected, honestly, you're going to go back. You're going to start all over again from the beginning with, you know, I'm going to start at the top of my list. I so appreciate you sharing those tips, you know, all of them, and especially that last one, because the listeners of this podcast know, you know, that I am all about moms taking care of themselves and the importance of self-care, you know, and I often say that moms and all parents really are the trunk of the tree, and in order for the branches to be doing okay, the trunk has to be doing okay, and sometimes part of taking care of the trunk, taking care of yourself is putting your baby down. And like you said, just giving yourself a couple minutes, but we feel guilty. So I really appreciate hearing from a pediatrician (laughs) that, that it's not only okay, but it's actually ideal to take a minute for yourself and to tune into your own needs, because ultimately that's going to be the healthiest and safest thing for your baby. That is absolutely a critical part of being a good parent. It's a critical part of breastfeeding. It's a critical part of disciplining. It's a critical part of being a good parent really for your entire life. If you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not checking into what is causing you stress, what is causing you anxiety, then that's going to rub off on your children at all stages of their lives. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that. So another super common question that, again, I remember having with all three of my children, and I know most parents have as well, is regarding a baby's breathing. Babies are often very noisy breathers or fast breathers. Can you help us understand when we should be worried um, and when it's okay? This is actually one of the most common questions that I get in the first couple of weeks of life. Okay. Um, First of all, babies breathe a lot faster than we do. So their natural breathing rate is more than twice of our natural breathing rate as adults. So the first question that I get from many parents is is exactly that. Like, oh my gosh, my baby is almost panting, panting like a dog. (laughs) And, And this is a completely normal breathing pattern for babies. They actually will do this where they'll breathe very, very fast for 20 seconds or 30 seconds. And if you're in the office with me, I'll usually kind of mimic what they do, but they pant for a few seconds. And then, and then they'll actually take a little bit of a break, which can be quite distressing for parents to watch. And they'll stop breathing for five seconds or sometimes 10 seconds. And then they go right back into the panting. So we call this periodic breathing where they will breathe very fast and then take a little break and then breathe very quickly again. So that's a completely normal pattern. But I think the most distressing thing that parents ask about at this age is nighttime breathing. Babies do two different types of breathing at nighttime. And maybe breathing is sort of the wrong way to say it, but make noises at nighttime that are related to their breathing that can be very, very distressing when the baby is in the bassinet next to you or wherever they're sleeping and you're listening to this. The first thing is that they're extremely congested in their nose, Mm. always. And it's a little bit strange. Like they don't have a cold. You don't necessarily see anything. Sometimes you do, but usually you don't actually see anything in the nose, but they just sound very stuffy, very congested. Um, And there's a couple of reasons for this. The first, of course, is that babies have tiny noses, right? They're just small. So they get, they do get congested very, very easily. Babies are what we call obligate nose breathers. They really only want to breathe through their nose. So when you are just a little bit stuffy and you fall asleep, you probably would open your mouth and breathe through your mouth. But babies really won't do that Mm. except under the very, very most extreme circumstances. So the stuffier they get, sort of just the noisier they get. Most babies spit up. And so when they spit up a little bit, it it tends to clog the back of the nose a little bit. And that causes some congestion. Mm. So it sounds very, very noisy when babies are breathing and you'll frequently hear these kind of snorting noises or, or just very, very congested noises. But, but this is not something to be concerned about. Honestly, almost all babies do this and they do it a lot more at nighttime than they do it during the day, but it's not dangerous. It doesn't mean that they are getting sick or having a cold or anything like that. So we, we just tell parents just to try to ignore that. Okay. The second kind of really, really noisy thing that's very distressing is babies will make these very strange kind of squeaking breathing noises in the middle of the night. almost sounds like they're choking and literally comes out of nowhere. Um, And this is the most distressing. You're fast asleep and all of a sudden you hear this bizarre squeaking noise coming out of your baby and parents will shoot out of bed and run over to the bassinet or the crib or wherever their baby is sleeping um, kind of to check on them and I, even I did that. I mean, knowing that these were perfectly normal noises, you just can't help yourself. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> um, you just can't, right? You're just like, what was that? Oh my gosh. And, you, and you're running over there, um, which is totally fair. Everybody's going to do that no matter what I tell them. But these noises are, again, totally normal. And uh, the, again, the reason why we're hearing this is because babies do have a little bit of, I'm, I'm going to say reflux, although it's not acid reflux. And, and um, so they do have a little bit of kind of this milk or saliva or, or stuff from their stomach kind of coming up and down. 
And interestingly, little babies can suck, swallow, and breathe all at the same time, which we cannot do. But huh. when when this kind of milk or, or, or saliva or whatever is there sort of comes up, it sort of trips them up a little bit. And mm. they're trying to work on that and figure that out. And so they'll make these squeaking noises as they're just trying to clear that fluid. But it is not dangerous. Babies do not choke on this. They don't, you know, aspirate it back into their lungs. It's not a dangerous thing. It's just a very noisy thing. <laughs> And they'll do it multiple times a night. And it gets better as they get older. They kind of learn to figure this out a little bit more easily. But that that is another really, really common question that I get from new parents. Okay, that is, that's really good to hear. Because <laughs> those, those yeah. are some, they're, they're scary noises, especially if you've never they're heard them They're very scary. Yeah. Uh, and even if you have. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what is that? <laughs> that's totally true. That is exactly right. Dr. Kaufman, can you talk to us about babies and gas? Some babies are, you know, particularly gassy. How can parents start to tell if it's reflux? And also, what can we do about it when babies are really gassy? Another really, really common problem. When babies are inside, when they're in utero, they are not using their tummy muscles for anything. They're floating around in water, in amniotic fluid. And so, as you know, of course, when babies are first born, all their muscles are really weak. You know, we have to help them hold their head. And that includes those, those tummy muscles, those abdominal muscles. When babies are inside, they also don't poop, right? So babies don't usually poop for the first time until they come out, until after they're born. And so that means that those the muscles that are around our bowels, our intestines that we use to have a bowel movement are also very weak and very uncoordinated. So it's sort of a perfect storm for gassiness. When our babies arrive, they haven't used any of these muscles, the external ones or the internal ones. On the other hand, almost everything our baby does in the first couple of weeks of life is sort of an exercise in swallowing air. So when they're nursing, when they're taking a bottle and they're sucking, they're swallowing a little bit of extra air along with that milk. If you give your baby a pacifier or if you give give your baby your finger to suck on, they are swallowing a little bit of air while they're doing that or a lot of air sometimes. When babies are crying, they are swallowing air when they're doing that. And so all this air is getting collected into their bellies and yet those muscles inside are extremely weak and extremely poorly coordinated at moving that air through. For that reason, again, almost all babies are gassy. Some babies, as you mentioned, are extremely gassy. Some babies just a little bit, but all babies are gassy. So this is one of those things, by the way, that can lead to crying that we talked about in the beginning, right? The more they cry, the gassier they get. And it becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle. Oh, because as they're crying, are they like pulling in more air into their belly? Okay. Exactly. Okay. And that can be painful. And it can be painful, Mm. exactly, causes tummy upset. And so it's really, really hard for parents to tell the difference between tummy upset. You know their tummy's upset, you hear the gas, sometimes you hear the gurgling. And so if parents go online and use their search engines, I don't want to necessarily mention any search engines, but if they're going online (laughs) and using their search engines, uh, they will frequently find that the search engines will frequently come up with reflux as an excuse for this or as a reason for this. And I will tell you that there is a difference between reflux and gas. So I'll talk a little bit about reflux, and then we can talk a little bit about sort of like what we can do about baby gas. Because reflux, as I just said, all babies spit up, all babies have a little bit of milk kind of coming out at some point. Some babies do this a lot, 
and some babies just a little, but all babies do. Even that is a little bit different from reflux or acid reflux, which we think about in older kids and adults. Babies in general don't make very much acid. And so usually when they're spitting up, it's not usually very painful for them. But every once in a while, we have a baby who does make extra stomach acid, and it is really, really painful for them. So specifically, if we're talking about reflux, we really want to think about painful spitting up. Most babies spit up, and you almost don't even notice. It's kind of dribbling out the side of their mouth. Right, right. Like and they don't even seem but to we have, care. It just kind of happens. They don't care. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Okay. But if we have a baby that's spitting up and crying mm. during the spitting up process, or if we have a baby that's eating and they seem really, really hungry and they really, really are like they really want to eat. But every couple seconds, they sort of stop and they cry like it's actually hurting them to swallow. Those are the times where we're really starting to think about acid reflux. And that you definitely want to speak to your pediatrician about. That's something that we sometimes will treat with just sort of mechanical things, positional changes. And if it's very severe, sometimes we do think about starting medicines for that. But that's a very specific situation. This other situation where your baby's just kind of bloated, having gassiness, having a distended tummy, we really try not to treat with medicine. There are some over-the-counter treatments for that that you can discuss with your pediatrician. But usually for gassiness, we want to do some mechanical things where we want to sort of like bicycle your baby's legs. You can do a little tummy massage. You can take their knees and sort of very gently push their knees up into their chest. And these types of mechanical things, positional things, will help your babies to sort of naturally get rid of the gas. There are some devices out there that parents are very interested in that you can actually literally put in your baby's bottom and sort of help them to expel the gas. And I think in very, very severe cases to be used very once in a while, I think that that's okay. But I think we want to try to avoid those types of things because we want to think of this as a little bit of exercise, right? They're working on those muscles. They're using them to try to increase their strength. So if we're constantly aiding them, we're constantly sort of using external devices to help the babies get rid of gas, then they're not doing that necessary exercise to make it easier for themselves in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting way to think of it. The, the phrase that came to mind for me was passing gas is a life skill, but like, you know, it's one of the things that you have, you have to That's learn perfect. how to do it, right? In order to, to be comfortable as you move on in your life. <laughs> wow. So. That's great. See, I've been doing this 25 years and now I'm going to, now I'm going to start to use that. Passing gas is a life skill. Awesome. It's yours, Dr. Kaufman. Right. <laughs> it's, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that. It's that yours. is awesome. It's um, totally true. Well, thank you. And so this is certainly something that parents can talk to their pediatrician about, right? So someone is really nervous and they've Absolutely. done the internet search and they found the thing that says your baby has reflux. This is a great time to call your pediatrician and have this conversation. Is that right? That is exactly right. And it's an important discussion to have with your pediatrician because most of the time, these are things that we can get by without any kind of medication. But, you know, if your baby does need medication, that's also an important thing to discuss with your doctor. Absolutely. Well, speaking of life skills, the next very common question is about babies and bowel movements. Babies often strain when they're having a bowel movement. How can we tell if it is normal or if it is constipation and needs to be addressed? So again, just like we were just saying, those muscles are all super weak, right? So just the act of having a bowel movement, it's really this exercise that babies need to do. 
Now, in the beginning, bowel movements, the very beginning, like the first day or two days, bowel movements are this sort of very uh, sticky, black, kind of tarry material. That's your baby's first bowel movements. It's, it's called meconium, and every baby has that. And uh, a lot of times that will sort of just pass, and they, sometimes they'll strain a little bit, but it sort of just comes out. Um, but then as your baby is starting to eat more, whether it's breast milk or formula, those uh, meconium stools, those black stools actually will loosen up a little bit. They turn into usually either a watery or kind of a pasty consistency. Um, and the color usually gets lighter and ultimately turns to yellow. But still, despite the fact that this is like watery or pasty, the babies are usually still really turning red, crying, straining, really pushing. It's like a whole event for them to have um, a bowel movement, especially early on. Yeah. And so parents and so parents will frequently ask me if this is constipation. But this is not constipation. This is just a normal process for babies. And it's super surprising. They'll push and push and push. And then they'll have this tiny little bit uh, sometimes or sometimes it's huge, but frequently just a tiny little bit of this really kind of watery consistency stool. And that's a, just a huge surprise for most parents. Babies will have many, many stools a day. So most babies will have anywhere from one to even up to 10 or 12 stools a day. And anything sort of in between is normal. But again, this is a really important thing to talk to your pediatrician about just to make sure that the number of stools that your baby's having is normal for you and for your baby. But when we're worried about constipation, honestly, is when babies are having formed stools. So we don't want to see anything that looks like a grown-up bowel movement, a grown-up stool, at least until your baby starts solid mm, foods, okay. um, which is going to be usually sometime between four and six months. So if you're seeing anything that's formed, anything that looks like a little ball or a little rabbit pellet or anything like that, that is constipation. And that is something that we're going to want to think about intervening. But if it's soft and your baby's just pushing really, really hard, generally, we don't need to worry about that. Okay. And is there a period of time that we should get worried? So, you know, my baby hasn't pooped in X number of hours or days that would sort of make you want to hear from parents? Yeah, that is a great question. So the first two or three days, a lot of times we will see that meconium once or twice. And then, especially for breastfeeding babies, as mom is sort of waiting for the milk to come in, mom's milk will usually come in sometime around day three to five. But starting around day two to three, if there's a little bit of a delay in mom's milk coming in, sometimes we will see no bowel movement for 24 hours or 36 hours. So early on, you definitely want to check in with your pediatrician around day three to five. Almost everybody gets told this on their way out the hospital. We always want to check in with you just to make sure your baby is getting enough to eat. All babies lose a little bit of weight in the beginning, but we want to make sure that they're not losing too much weight, that they're not getting dehydrated. So in the very early days, I would say, if it's been more than about 36 hours, definitely 48 hours, you want to check in with your pediatrician if you haven't already to really check on your breastfeeding and, and make sure that everything is going in the right direction. Once we know that your breastfeeding is going in the right direction, once we know that your baby is getting breast milk or if, if you're doing bottles, your baby's getting formula, we usually, as I said, will see anywhere from one to maybe 10, 10 or 12 stools a day in that range, which I know is a big, big range. Yeah. A lot of diapers <laughs> to change. A lot of diapers. Sure. And so we'll see that sort of pattern in most babies for about the first three to four weeks. But it is extremely common for all babies, regardless of what they're being fed, around three to four weeks, 
many, 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 many babies will have a significant decrease in the amount of stools that they're having. In fact, okay. some babies at that age will stop having a bowel movement every day. Yeah. And some babies, in fact, will only have a bowel movement once or twice a week. So by the time you're getting out to three or four weeks old, if your baby starts skipping days or three or four days or even five days, as long as when they do have a bowel movement, it is still soft, that is still usually okay. And I will usually allow babies on a regular basis, three or four weeks old or older, to go even as long as a week before I will intervene. And again, for the same reasons that we said with the gas, right? They really need to figure out how to work this out themselves. Um, we don't want to do too much intervention because we don't want to interfere with that natural process of strengthening those muscles and getting that kind of coordination. Now, a baby who hasn't had a bowel movement in five days or six days, they're sort of extra gassy and they may be a little bit cranky. So that's, again, where you can use those maneuvers of sort of bringing those knees to the chest, kind of gently kind of pushing them into the chest or doing a little tummy massage to kind of help out. And if you do get to six days or seven days and you are really concerned, of course, definitely do call your pediatrician. There are sometimes some simple interventions that we can do that aren't too serious to try to help out. That's really helpful to know. Thank you. Yeah, I can recall vividly my first went a week without pooping and I called my pediatrician every day and I was like, no, but yeah. really you don't understand. And they were like, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Dr. Kaufman, you have, you have touched on this in lots of the questions that you've answered for us so far, um, but I'd love for you to give listeners an idea of the times when they really should give their pediatrician a call. Are there a handful of things that, that are sort of most concerning to you that would elicit that phone call, even at 2 a.m.? So I, I think there are a short list of things that are absolutely like, you must call us. I think the most important one, the one that we are, we really try to hit upon, because I actually think it's a little surprising to some new families, it was surprising to me when I was a young mom, the most important one is fever. And the truth is, I think most people do want to call their pediatrician when their child has a fever. But sometimes really confident moms are a little bit surprised, like, well, it's just a little fever. But in the first two months of life, um, it is something that we are very, very particular about. And it's very confusing because when you are in the hospital with your baby, you will notice that the nurses are taking the baby's temperature usually every four to six hours. And in most hospitals, the nurses are doing underarm temperatures. We call them axillary temperatures. And they do that every couple hours and they write it down on a little, little chart. But when you come home, when you get home with your babies, usually I, and, and some pediatricians may differ from this, but usually I will tell parents, do not take your baby's temperature. You, unless you think something is really, really wrong, it's, it's not a great idea to take your baby's temperature every four hours or every six hours. First of all, once you're at home, those axillary temperatures aren't super accurate. The nurses have an understanding of how to do them really, really well and how to interpret them. But at home, when you're trying to do them as a new parent, they're not the most accurate way to take your baby's temperature. So unfortunately, the only really, really accurate temperature that we can get in new babies is a rectal temperature. And I know that sounds very, very distressing to uh, most new parents. The truth is, it's actually a very simple procedure and your pediatrician can help you understand how to do it if you want some help. Um, but we usually recommend don't take your baby's temperature unless you think something is really, really wrong. If you do end up taking your baby's temperature, we would like to know about a temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit 
or 38 degrees Celsius. And that is definitely an any time of day or night phone call. Two in the morning, three in the morning, it does not matter. We wanna hear from you if your young baby under say three months has a temperature um, at, at all. We wanna know about that right away. We, we consider that an emergency. The next one is breathing. You know, we touched a little bit on the fact that babies uh, breathe really fast. But of course, if you really think your baby is having trouble breathing, that's another really, really big one that we want to know about any time of day or night. And so there are a couple of key things that parents can look for. And so the, the two really big ones, the first one is called nasal flaring. So, you know, we said that babies do have stuffy noses, but when you're looking at your baby, if you notice that their nostrils are flaring out with, with each breath, in and out, in and out, in and out, that's a little bit unusual. And that is usually a sign that babies are struggling a little bit. And it might be something that you want to give your pediatrician a call for. The other one is if you lift up your baby's shirt and look at your baby's chest as they're breathing, a baby that's having a little bit of trouble breathing, it's, it's actually a really strange thing to look at. You, you will actually notice they look like they're sucking in the skin in between their ribs with each breath. And you'll actually see as they're breathing, ribs appearing and disappearing, very rhythmically, appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing. And so that also is a little bit of a sign that your baby may be having a little bit of trouble breathing and you definitely wanna give your doctor uh, a call. The last test that I like to do with babies is a lot of times babies who are having trouble breathing, they won't suck on anything. They won't nurse, they won't take a bottle, they won't suck on your finger or pacifier. So that's a pretty good test to do, right? If you're trying to get your baby to suck on something and they're breathing so fast and so hard that they can't nurse or they can't take a bottle, absolutely you want to give your pediatrician a call. Okay, that's really um, helpful to know, especially, you know, going back to what we were saying or you were saying in the beginning about how do you know what's normal and how do exactly. you know what's not. So I really appreciate you sharing what's not normal as well. Those are super important. And a lot of times when parents are in the office, it's, it's obviously much easier to demonstrate like, okay, you see this, this is perfectly normal. And then if I see them come in when their baby is having trouble breathing, we can always point out like, okay, this is exactly what you want to be looking for. And definitely call us when you see this. The other real, real sort of biggie sort of emergency in the middle of the night phone call is going to be if you see your baby spitting up something that looks like it glows in the dark, that is like really fluorescent kind of green. That That's definitely something that we want to hear about. Babies will spit up milk that looks like they just drank it. So just plain looking breast milk. Sometimes babies will spit up some curdled looking milk. Sometimes babies will spit up a little bit of mucus even, and that's okay. But if they're spitting up something that looks like bile or that really, really glows in the dark, for a young baby, that's not common and that's not normal. And that's something that we definitely, definitely want to hear from you about. Okay. And then the last one I think is, is blood in the stool. Mm. And in fact, blood in the stool is actually not usually an emergency. It's not usually an emergency, Okay. but it can be, mm. it can be. And so it is something that we really would like to hear about from you right away. Okay. Most people are going to call that. That's yeah. usually pretty alarming. Most <laughs> Most I don't usually need to tell people that one, right? right? Most people are usually like, oh my gosh, there's blood in the stool. Um, exactly, right? So so obviously, certainly do give us a call for that. The last one, of course, is is we, we know that being a new parent is exhausting and really, really stressful. So, you know, as pediatricians, most people who went into pediatrics understand this. And we welcome phone calls. We want parents to ask their questions. So if you have something that's really bothering you, you should call your pediatrician. I always tell my patients, it's better... For you to call me and it'll take me two minutes to tell you that everything is okay 
then for you to spend, you know, four hours or six hours awake worrying at night. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you saying that because I think that, you know, a a lot of people worry. They don't want to, you know, quote, bother their doctor um, or their healthcare provider or, you know, they don't want to be, quote, that patient. But I think it's so important to remind people that, like, this is why like we knew what we were signing up for, right? Like this is the job. Exactly. And you know, when we had our Instagram live, which for those that are listening, you can go to Motherly's IGTV and you can still catch that. But one of the things that you shared, Dr. Kaufman, that I really appreciated was, you know, you should feel really comfortable calling your doctor, even if it's 2 a.m. And if you don't, maybe it's time to find a new pediatrician. Exactly. I absolutely agree. I think it's such an important relationship. It's it's a very different relationship that you have with your pediatrician, I think, than really any other doctor. A little bit similar maybe to your obstetrician, but it's it's a very sort of cooperative relationship that you should have with your pediatrician. And you should really feel comfortable, honestly, asking them pretty much any question. And if you don't feel comfortable going into your pediatrician and talking about pretty much any topic. I mean, we talk about poop. We talk about for anything that, that you can think of as far as the body goes, we talk about. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then that's probably not the right doctor mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you saying that. I tell um, the patients that I take care of that, you know, yes, your child has to like the pediatrician, but it's also really important that you as the parent click with the pediatrician because, you know, especially in the beginning, the baby's not having the conversations. (laughs) The baby's not nervous at 2 a.m. It's you, right? (laughs) And again, just like we talked about with the crying, your baby's going to take their cues from you. So if you don't have a great relationship with a pediatrician, then chances are your child also isn't going to. Right. Well, along these lines, can you let people know how they can choose the best pediatrician for them and their family? There are a lot of factors that you can look into that you can think about when choosing a pediatrician. And I think some people, I think maybe a little bit more so in the Bay Area, are thinking a little bit about, you know, school or training. And I think if you're kind of medically oriented and you know schools or you know training programs, that's certainly something that you could think about. Although the truth is, all the medical schools in the United States teach the same thing, right? So does it really matter, you know, did your pediatrician go to this medical school or that medical school, honestly, it probably does not at all because we all learn the same things no matter which medical school we go to. So I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing. Yeah, Um, that's good to know. uh, so, So that's one thing that you can look at. Another thing that people will look at is sort of the office location. And particularly for working parents, I think this is something that you might want to consider. You know, is the office location close to your home or is the office location maybe close to your work? And that's a choice that people maybe want to think about, particularly if you're a working parent and your child's going to be in daycare closer to your work, you might think about, gosh, I have a lot of well child visits to go to. So maybe it would be easier to have a pediatrician a little bit closer to where I work so that I could take a two hour break from work and pick my baby up from daycare and go to my well child visit and then go back to work. That's a little challenging because then if you're homesick with your baby, you might need to drive a little bit farther with your sick baby to get to the pediatrician. So it's a, it's a trade-off, right? Sure. And you just need to sort of decide which is more important. Of course, office hours, are they, are they convenient for you? Technology, you know, does the office have sort of a patient portal that you can log into and email and answer questions? I think this is really, really important to a lot of parents. 
But for me, there's really one factor that I think is the most important thing in choosing a pediatrician. And it really goes back to all that we've been talking about. And that is sort of your comfort level with that doctor. And it's a little bit of a difficult thing to know before your baby arrives. I think that there are all different types of people out there and there are all different types of doctors out there. And when you think about your health or your child's health, there's sort of two kind of big styles I think that people can veer towards. The one style is a little bit more of an active style, I guess, where you are sort of looking for every test or every x-ray or, and there are some doctors who sort of practice with this style. Um, And they say, well, you know, let's do this test sort of just because it's not really going to change what we're going to do, but it might be interesting to know. And then there are other pediatricians who are a little bit more sort of hands off and say, you know what, let's not do something just because let's do something only if it's really going to change, change our management, you know, help us decide if we need a medicine or help us decide if we, you know, need to stay home from school. But if it really doesn't matter, let's not bother doing the test. And those are two very valid but different styles. And a lot of times parents don't know what style they would prefer until they have a baby. And then they're sort of thinking about, well, now my baby has a, we have a question or a problem and and which style would we, you know, rather use? You might be able to figure it out sort of based on your style as a pregnant family, how did you approach your pregnancy? Did you want every single test? Or were you more like, hmm, maybe I don't need that test? And that might give you a little bit of a clue, although sometimes it changes after you have a baby. So again, if you get to your pediatrician and you feel like something just doesn't click, it just doesn't feel right to you, you should feel free to look around, ask your friends, even ask your pediatrician, say, you know what, this style just doesn't really work for me? Do you know somebody who might, mm. you know, match better with what I'm looking for? And honestly, even within my own practice, we have 13 doctors at Peninsula Pediatrics kind of around the, the Bay Area, or, or even more, if you look at all of Stanford, um, Stanford Children's, I can help parents to kind of find uh, the pediatrician who sort of fits their style a little bit better. Right, right. And that's so, I mean, it, it's so invaluable as a parent to have a pediatrician with whom you have that relationship and with whom you trust, because, you know, when you do make that, we keep talking about this 2 a.m. phone call, but when you, you make that 2 a.m. phone call, you want to really know that you can trust whatever it is they say. So when they say, everything's fine, you can go back to sleep, you want to believe them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So having a good relationship with your pediatrician is so huge. So I really appreciate you saying that, you know, it's okay. Cause in some ways you're not going to, like you said, you're not going to know until you kind of meet someone and figure out their style. So you have a couple appointments with someone and you're like, you know, this just isn't a match. It's really nice to know that it's okay to switch and you're not going to hurt someone's feelings exactly. and you're, you know, you deserve to have medical providers who are everything that you need them to be. That's exactly right. So important. Yeah. Well, I love my pediatricians out here on the East Coast, but I'm like, maybe I should move to the Bay Area so I can become Dr. Kaufman's <laughs> patient. <laughs> but for, for people who are lucky enough to be in the Bay Area and are interested in learning more about you and your practice, Dr. Kaufman, can you share a little bit about how people can find you? So probably the best way to find me is to go to um, Stanford Children's website, stanfordchildren.org. Right at the top right corner of the screen, there'll be a little button that says find a doctor. And when you click on that button, there's a little a little search engine that opens up and you can just type in my name, Jennifer Kaufman. And then once you do that, my whole profile, the photo is for my office will come up. And that's probably the best way to find me. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and your time. I know you're incredibly busy. Um, I've had so much fun chatting with you, and I know we've all learned a lot. It was so nice to be here. I really appreciate you having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. So thank you again. And once again, I'd love to thank Stanford Children's Health for hosting this podcast. As a reminder, Stanford Children's Health is in San Francisco in the Bay Area. They are the largest healthcare system exclusively dedicated to children and expectant mothers. So if you are in the Bay Area, we cannot recommend them more highly. So go find the location that is closest to you and check them out. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.